Welcome back. It is Deb Hutton filling in for Reshmi Nair all this week. And it's 4.30, which means it is time for our Smart Speakers panel. Today, I am joined by John Moore, host of Moore in the Morning, and the Reverend Michael Korn, a News Talk 1010 contributor. Gentlemen, welcome to Smart Speakers. Nice to be here. So I'm going to start with uh, a topic that, Michael, you have, uh, I think, some pretty strong opinions on. John probably does because John has strong opinions on everything. And that (laughs) is that Trudeau should go if the liberals have even the remotest chance of winning the next election, whenever that might be. Well, I feel a bit sorry for him, actually. I mean, I don't think that the liberals can win the next election. Um, I've been wrong in the past, but it, it's it's very, very unlikely. The, what they have to do now is save enough of their seats to rebuild for a comeback. And I don't think that Justin Trudeau has been in a, a particularly bad prime minister. And anyone who led any country during COVID uh, has the odds against them. He didn't do a bad job. But it's got to that point where there is fatigue, um, He came in on a wave of charisma. By its nature, that doesn't last. Whatever he does now seems to be wrong. Uh, Even the most trivial uh, comment made by Pierre Polyev seems to be a victory. It's almost too late at this point. But yes, if the Liberals have any chance, I think he has to go. When the party brand is more popular than the leader, you know it's over. But I would be very surprised if Justin Trudeau would resign. I think he feels called to win and he won't, but to try and win another election. Michael, uh, as John knows, I've posited the view that he should actually stay for the good of the party. And my reasoning is that they can't win, as you've pointed out. And again, Mm -hmm. we've all been (laughs) proven wrong on many different elections, I'm sure, but that he can't win. And so uh, there isn't someone obvious waiting in the wings, and you would be handing them a really, really tough sort of starting from way behind um, challenge to head into the next election. So try and keep as many seats as they can, focus on Quebec, let Trudeau lose, walk away gracefully, and then live to fight another day. Thoughts on that? I don't think there is any graceful exit at this point, actually. And that probably sounds very bleak, and I don't mean to, to be overly critical, but um, he will lose badly. And yes, they hold on to a certain number of seats, but it'll be a rump. And uh, everybody knows at that point he has to go. There is still time to rebuild not for victory, but for something like a firm platform. And I think most people agree it should be a woman. I think Krista Freeland probably doesn't want the job anymore. Maybe she did at one point. Yeah, and it is a bit of a poison chalice, but there's a lot of ambition left in the party. Um, and look at the provincial liberals, for goodness sake. In a, in a terrible situation, there were some very able people who wanted that job. And I think a a very able person has taken over. So I would still, if I was a liberal mover and shaker, I would be putting pressure on Trudeau to leave very, very quickly. John, uh, you know Quebec better than uh, Michael and I do. What's your thought on that? Because I always think Quebec can be the savior of the liberals if they play it properly. Possibly. I mean, there are many ways that Pierre Polyev could screw things up in Quebec. You and I were talking about this this morning that, you know, he can't go after Radio Canada because Radio Canada is sacred in Quebec. So it would be suicidal. Uh, He speaks a good French. And here's a funny thing about Quebec. Quebecers like a winner. They're very capricious. So they often vote with the person who's going to win. And when it comes to Pierre Polyev, if it looks like he's going to win, Quebecers might say, "Okay, we're in. But 
quick last thought about Trudeau. I agree. It's tired. It's old. He's been around for a good long time. I don't think anybody wants to play Kim Campbell for the Liberals and step in in order to run down the caucus to a rump. But at the same time, again and again and again, we merely confirm that all the people who never liked Trudeau continue to not like Trudeau. Are the rest of Canadians ready to climb on board with that? Is Pierre Polyev popular enough that people want to throw in with him? Uh, Who are the other stars? aside from our friend Melissa Lantzman uh, in his future cabinet? I don't know. Uh, Justin Trudeau has defied things. And there's a great story about Jacques Chrétien where the Martinites were trying to push him out, and he was in a meeting. And they basically said, you've got to leave because it's Paul Martin's time and you're going to lose. And Aline Chrétien, just in the back of the room, said, F him. <laughs> and Chrétien said, I'm running. And he won. Yeah, I mean, listen, I won't take a very huge bet on it, uh, although I I, I would take a small one that uh, he will not be our prime minister. So more details today. uh, A good news announcement, obviously, for uh, Jagmeet Singh and for the Liberals, and that is uh, just reinforcing where we are with rolling out the federal dental plan. $90,000 and under is the threshold. There's uh, different co-pays depending on where you sit in that threshold. But for uh, household incomes of $70,000 annually, and below, there will be no copay. Singh is taking credit for this, calling it the NDP dental plan. I guess the question I want to ask you guys, you're certainly happy to take um, your, your general reaction to this massive program, which as you can tell by my uh, <laughs> inflection is not <laughs> one that I like, uh, but also why they didn't get uh, some sort of agreement, Michael, on from the provinces. Because I see companies and provinces and some municipalities who have dental top-up plans walking away from this because the feds have stepped in yeah i have deep concerns i I fully support socialized medicine and socialized industry too but if we look beyond canada uh this system has failed miserably i've just come back from the uk now we can joke about british dentistry i'm sure we will but the the point is we i was raised with a a dental system that was effectively free for people you cannot find now in in britain a, a dentist that's part of the public sector. I was chatting to an academic uh, where one of the leading dental schools in the country is in her university, and she can't find a dentist for the National Health Service because the private system has become dominant. This is not a done deal. I know it looks good, and, and the the echo, the, the, the ripples of Tommy Douglas and socialized medicine, <laughs> that was a very different campaign at a very different time. This looks better than it is, I think. And as you say, and not everybody is on board. Uh, this this will take a long time to implement. And if there is a change of well, there will be a change of government. What happens then? Uh, no, I, I think this is it's not smoke and mirrors, but it looks far better than it actually is. John, your general thoughts on it? Well, this is enormous, right? I mean, we've created a whole new social program. And while I would always argue dental care is health care because, you know, you've heard all of the research and the personal stories from people who say, well, you know, I had gum disease and it turned out I was about to have a heart attack. It's it's critical. But at the same time, I'm kind of with Michael. I'm a bit jaundiced about this kind of stuff because we just keep on introducing things that are fantastic ideas and things, programs that everybody wants. But we never know how we're going to pay for these things. And this is a massive program. I was looking at some research this morning. I said it was like sort of the third largest social program in Canada. And we have we have no funding. 
Uh, no, you're absolutely right. I, I come from the school of thought that says until your budget is balanced, you don't get to do new program spending. Or if you do, you have to take something else away. Michael Korn, there's a new uh, Wonka movie coming out. And I know you have some history with uh, Roald Dahl, who is the author of Willy Wonka. Yeah, I do. when I was a very young man uh, in the early 1980s, my first job was at a British magazine called The New Statesman. And I was asked to go and interview Roald Dahl, who'd written a review uh, in a magazine about the uh, the war in Lebanon, where he was very cr- critical of Israel. Deja vu all over again. And uh, he, his criticism went beyond anti-Zionism or criticism of Israeli policy. It, it was anti-Semitic. So I interviewed him, and I've been a huge fan. Um, and I asked him questions, and he came out with the most severe, vulgar base anti-Semitism. And I was incredulous. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I asked him to clarify, and he did. I, I told him I was of, of partly Jewish heritage and didn't seem to change his mind at all. It was quite extraordinary. Now, back then, pre-social media, the story, when it was published, it still caused a stir. But over the years, uh, he had the chance to explain himself and say, I didn't quite mean it. But he just doubled down on it. He was, and I, I don't say this about many people, he was an absolute anti-Semite. He simply did not like Jewish people. And that doesn't mean I want him cancelled, far from it. But I do find it rather interesting that Netflix bought uh, all of his works for a fortune. They're constantly making movies. There was a biopic about him that was really quite fawning. Uh, Yet the man had the most repugnant views about um, uh, people who have suffered so terribly historically. And I I don't think he ever paid any sort of price for it. John Moore, Michael Korn, stay tuned. They'll be with me after the break. It's Deb Hutton filling in for Reshmi Nair. Welcome back. It's Deb Hutton sitting in for Reshmi Nair this afternoon. Thanks so much for being with me. And thank you to John Moore, host of More in the Morning, and the Reverend Michael Korn, who is News Talk 1010 contributor, for joining me for Smart Speakers. Earlier today, uh, the Minister of Education announced a plan. He joined me here on The Rush to talk about that plan to cut the time it takes to build a school in this province in half. Uh, I asked him if it was sort of a, a cookie cutter kind of approach to things. And it's a little bit more complicated than that, obviously, but there will be sort of um, schools on a box that you can you can choose from looking at making sure land is maximized. Um, previous legislation also allowed them to, to work with municipalities to get approvals going. He says schools have taken as many as 10 years in this province to build. The average is between four and seven. Thoughts, uh, John Moore, on whether he could actually cut that in half? Well, it's a sweet idea, isn't it? But how's that crosstown going? I think, you know, if we decide to go drab and just keep doing cookie-cutter schools and using the same design and maybe even do using 3D printing, uh, that maybe we can pull this off, but I think it's a little overly ambitious. I never trust government that sets arbitrary goals for infrastructure and says, we're going to do it faster. Michael Corrin, your thoughts. I suggested, by the way, that we just cut out the middlemen and get rid of the school board. But as John knows, that's a bit of a hobby horse for me. (laughs) Well, I I agree with John. My wife is a teacher, retired now. But the the, the joke about the portable, you know, you'll be in this portable for this amount of time and double it, treble it. I mean, politicians do this too often. They give an absolute. We will halve the time. 
They won't. They won't. They may reduce the time. They probably will reduce the time. But anyone who's worked with builders, particularly if it's a large project, it's it's virtually impossible to guarantee a time. Even with the best will of the world, no industrial action, uh, prices remain the same, everything is constant, it all goes well, there'll still be a delay. It's the nature of, of, of what it is. And so these promises are made. And I know that maybe it's not to win an election, but it's it, it's for it's for profile, it's for prestige. We look good. We're going to have, as we said earlier, a dental system where everyone can have dental care. We're going to take half the time to build a school. No, I don't think it's achievable. I wonder if it's even that important. Quality of education. The building is important, but it's not the most significant aspect of it. That there's a lot of things involved in this equation. I have huge problems with contemporary education, but I don't know if if better quality buildings are the only answer. It sounds quite good to some people, but I, I'm sorry, I'm not that impressed. Okay, but Deb, I would say, if I can disagree with Michael for a second, um, Frank Lloyd Wright always said you behave differently in a building, depending on how that building has been constructed. So he would construct a workplace that made people feel good about being at work. So I do think design is important. And further than that, I also also would think that we need to get way more creative you know that I, I wish I could remember the name of the school is it Northwestern uh, but it's a high school up north of Eglinton and what they did was they gave up a bunch of land and then somebody came in and built a condo and then they built the high school inside the condo and it's spectacular North Toronto yeah yeah, it's uh, it's actually a school. I will say that kids in my neighborhood, which is just bit, a bit you know further north than that, are desperate to get into, even though it's not in our, our catchment. Um, so speaking of school, Michael Korn, we have a study out that says only one third of Canadians, and I will argue that's probably a bit high because uh-huh. it's one third of Canadians who uh, acknowledge they have uh, read the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. First oh. and foremost... I mean, is this important? Does it matter? And where the heck is our school on this stuff? I don't think I've met anyone who's actually read the charter in full, but parts of it, of course. But I, I don't know, people listening now, uh, if, if only we could tell, have they all read the charter? We have an idea of what is in it, sometimes uh, actually a rather uh, twisted idea of what is in it. And we tend to read into the Charter of Rights and Freedoms of what we want to be in it when it actually isn't there. I mean, it's not as explicit as some people think. Does this concern me? Um Look, there, there was a poll taken just a few days ago about people under the age of 20 or in, sorry, people uh, under the age of 25, I think, their view that their views on the Holocaust. It was something like 20 percent of, of young people doubt the Holocaust happened. That's in the United States. There are some enormous issues of lack of education. People who are raised on TikTok, people who don't read books anymore, that they haven't read the charter. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, John, and the other part of this study, as you know, is is those who had read it didn't understand it. And much yeah. of that because we get so much information from south of the border. But don't you think it's sort of a basic tenet of some sort of civics course or and, and I listen, it is in the curriculum, but I had a teacher who called in earlier today when I was talking about this, who said, but you you craft it around the principles as opposed to saying, here now is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so kids may have technically been taught the principles of it, but not the fact that we have one or what specifically is 
presented? Well, I will tell you, it's dry reading. And I also think that the one third of the people who responded to that poll who said they read it are lying. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, <laughs> that's what happens. Pollsters call and you go, yes, of course I have, because I wouldn't want this stranger on the phone to think I'm dumb. But um, you know what? I don't really care, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I, I, It's a very dry document. As long as my lawyer knows what's in it, if I ever end up in a charter challenge, I'm good. And certainly we saw, as you remember, during the whole convoy protest, the number of Canadians who seem to think we have first, second, third, fourth, you know, there are 14 amendments that, you know, and they were saying, I'm going to take the fifth when I go to court. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> and I really wanted to get to this story. I'll try and explain it quickly. We have two teachers. It's, it's not a new story, uh, but there are uh, a new element to it. Two English teachers in rural Missouri moonlighting on OnlyFans website, which is a subscription-based uh, website known, and there are many of them apparently, for sexually explicit content. So basically, they're earning money on the side, moonlighting as sometimes uh, they don't devolve, uh, it, don't say who they are, um, don't show their face, that sort of thing. But they're teachers. Should this be allowed? Should we care? Well, I would certainly say that if your eight-year-old child is on OnlyFans watching somebody doing something sexual, then you need to have a conversation with that kid before you have a conversation with their teacher. Well, and so this is they've been outed, right? So somebody has been a subscription um, holder and has outed them. Well, of course. So you you know they're going to be outed. And, you know, I think it is an issue. Um, I'm... (laughs) Sex work, if, if if it's consensual, I mean, I, it's not something that I'm particularly concerned about. But as a teacher, you're acting as a role model. It goes beyond the classroom. Yeah, there are issues here. Now, what teachers are paid in the United States is a sin, yeah. and that should be addressed. But there, no, there are other ways to make money. And uh, they must have known the chances of being exposed were very high. Maybe, maybe there's a pun there. I don't know. But no, it, it's it, it's not the way the school now has to cope with this. Goodness knows how they're going to. Um, there's always going to be parents who will make a bigger issue of this than it, than it really is. But no, it's wrong. And um, I, I also want to state quite explicitly, I'd never heard of this site before. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I think... It always happens, doesn't it? There's a, I'm not going to name him, but there's, there's someone in the United States now, a, a leading conservative Christian, who's made a lot of noise about condemning gay people. And then guess what? His picture appeared on a, a gay dating site, should we call it. It's almost inevitable that when, when people will be exposed, they'll be shown to be inconsistent, hypocrites, or in this case, simply not living to the standard that I think most parents would assume their teachers would live to. Yeah, and Deb, I know we're out of time, but I just wanted to tell a quick story, which is that in Montreal years ago, there was a kerfuffle because firefighters were stripping in a gay bar and the fire department finally said, knock yourselves out, do what you want, just don't wear your uniform. (laughs) As it were. (laughs) A compromise. John Moore, that is the kind of humor you're going to hear tomorrow morning when he joins us at six as he does every morning. And Michael Korn, thanks so much for joining me. It's Deb Hutton sitting in for Rush Minaire. You're listening to The Rush.